Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. The Lord Jesus is speaking. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come to, into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus' final discourse, of which this is a small section, uh, is taking up a major portion of the final half of John's Gospel. And it details the final days of Jesus' life and, and his resurrection. So this whole section begins in chapter 13 and it goes through chapter 21. Chapter Beginning of 13 is the, is the final supper. Uh, chapter 18 is Jesus' bet, betrayal and uh, trial. And chapter 19 is his death, and chapters 20 and 21 are resurrection appearances. And the rest of it, from 1331 until 1726, is this final discourse he has with the 11 disciples. And uh, the chapter divisions are really irrelevant here because it's all one big uh, coherent uh, discussion. And it's, it has no parallel in the synoptics. It's a very uh, powerful uh long-term discussion really detailing what Jesus wants to tell his disciples before he leaves. And he's preparing them for his death and resurrection and for the commission that they would receive. So these are the final words of Jesus that are ringing in their ears. Uh, the audience is the 11 disciples. That's a specific audience and we need to then do some interpretive work to understand what may also apply beyond them. He began in chapter 1331 through chapter 14 and verse 14 by explaining that he was about to be glorified. He gave them and emphasized a new command to the disciples to love one another as Jesus had loved them. 
that they would be known as his disciples by their love for one another, and that he was leaving to prepare a place for them in the house of his father, that they knew the way, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the embodiment of the character of the father, so that Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. He wanted to assure them in chapter 14, 15 through 31, that they would not be left as orphans, that the comforter would be sent to them, uh, the helper, the spirit of truth. And Jesus would maintain his presence among them through the spirit. And disciples would end up doing greater things than Jesus did because the comforter would be with them. That he was going away to fulfill the commands of the Father, he would leave his peace with them. And the Comforter would come and teach them all the things and remind them of all the things that he had told them. Jesus then, in chapter 15, 1-7, illustrated his instruction he's been giving with the image of the vine uh, and branches. That he is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and the disciples are the branches. They are nourished, sustained, and empowered through that relational unity with God in the connection of the branch and the vine uh, to bear fruit, which is holiness and righteousness and leading people to Jesus. Jesus considered the disciples to be his friends. They were no longer mere servants. Uh, he had commanded them all these things in the view that they would love one another. And at the end of chapter 15, into chapter 16, Jesus set forth the hatred the disciples would experience from the world, that, that just as Jesus had been persecuted by the, uh, the world, they would persecute his disciples as well, with a special note on what would happen uh, to those who are in Israel and how they would uh, cast them out of the synagogues and think they were giving God service, but they really didn't know God based on what they had been doing. And then in verses 4 through 15 of chapter 6, Jesus again promises this comforter that would convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment and lead the disciples into all truth. And now the, the section that we're discussing now, verses 16 through 33 of chapter 16, is really at the end of the discourse itself. Chapter 17 is a prayer to the Father, very powerful in its own right, but this is the last part here uh, that is a specific discourse conversing with the disciples. And it's a final explanation of what's about to take place. I understand a tribulation was coming, but there would be a victory that Jesus would gain. And really, the whole discourse centers around this, this statement that Jesus makes again in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Uh, Jesus has spoken the first half of the statement before. He said it before all of Israel in John 7:33 and in John 12:35, and he began this whole discourse with something similar in chapter 13 and verse 33. A little while I am with you, and where I am going you cannot come. Something similar there, and he said something again similar in John 14:19. And the disciples are confused about the statement. And they, they're asking one another, what do I mean? Not even just this, but also because I go to the Father, going all the way back. Uh, to what we saw earlier in chapter 14. And Jesus perceives their confusion. Doesn't They don't understand what's going on. And he only amplifies the contrast, though, in his response. That he says, okay, you would weep and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. The, they would then be sorrowful, but then their sorrow would turn to joy. And in fact, in verses 21-22, he compared the situation to a woman in labor. Uh, during labor, she's in great distress, the, the pains of childbirth. But once she has the child, the, the, the distress is forgotten, um, the joy of having the child. And therefore, the disciples would have sorrow, but that sorrow would turn to joy. And as he said in verse 22, no one would take that joy away from them. It's one of those things where, hey, today, uh, after it's all said and done, we can very clearly see what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the fact that he would die in death 
and that would cause great sorrow to the disciples, but the world rejoiced. And then, though, he would rise from the dead, which would cause lamentation in the world because it's in confusion in the world, but they would have reason as the disciples to rejoice that God had fulfilled his purposes in Jesus. But that was not something that would have been obvious while it was going on. This is something that we can kind of see uh, after it happened. And it's a compelling way, though, for Jesus to talk about his death and resurrection. And it also demonstrates just how contextual this discourse is. We can't just take this discourse whole cloth and project it on the world after the resurrection. Uh, this part very much is very contextual. It works right at this moment uh, of Jesus talking to disciples, reassuring his disciples. Again, he says these things so that when they come to pass, they would believe that this is not... Sure, it's not what was expected, but it was something that had been predicted. And so not for nothing is his final message to them about his death and resurrection, because it was very imminent, but it's also important to see how well he captured the agony and ecstasy of the experience. Just like the woman in childbirth, that's the agony of the ecstasy. And there's the agony of what was going on with Jesus in the ecstasy uh, in the resurrection. It's very parallel, very poignant, very, very compelling. And Jesus again goes back to this constant emphasis in verse 23 and 24. On that day, when they see him in the resurrection, they will no more need to ask questions. They'd ask of the Father, and they'd receive in Jesus' name. Beforehand, they had not asked in Jesus' name, but if they asked, they would receive that their joy will be made full. This is something we've already seen in John 14, 13, and 14, chapter 15, and verse 7, and verse 16. This asking and receiving. So again, when Jesus repeats himself, he doesn't do it often, but he does in this discourse, and he's repeating for emphasis. And this is another point of emphasis. Uh, asking the name of Jesus is now based on the authority of Jesus, and that's why they haven't yet asked in his name, because he had not yet received all authority, but on that day he would receive it. So he's kind of projecting there. And the theme of joy being made full is something we saw also with the uh, discussion of the vine and the branches in John 15, 11. And it also explains why Jesus has said these things. And that would be a theme in John as well. In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, he writes what he writes so that uh, their joy would be made full as they are uh, maintaining fellowship in Jesus. Section 25 through 33 uh, is talking about uh, what he's been talking about in the, and, and, and the final words here that he has before uh, all these things take place. Jesus admitted he spoke to them in, in Greek, paroimiais. But the day would come when he would speak of the Father to them in the Greek, paresia, in John 16.25. Now, paroimiais, in, according to Thayer, is a saying that deviates from the usual manner. It's a proverb, symbolic, or figurative speech, allegory, extended metaphor, uh, things of that nature. Paresia is a freedom in speaking, unreserved speech, boldness, assurance, conspicuous. Uh, so, we talk about the Greek terms because there's different ways of translating it. Figures of speech, um, dark sayings. The problem with dark sayings is that dark kind of has more of a connotation as opposed to just something that's unknown. Uh, but you get the idea there, and paresia is more plain here. Maybe bold, but really plain, clear. And so when they ask him on that day, he's not going to ask the Father on their behalf because the Father loves them because they have loved Jesus and they have believed that Jesus came from the Father. So, again, asking Jesus. This is now an assumed thing here in this section, whereas earlier it had been exhorted, now it's being assumed. The reason that this is difficult, and sometimes when it's nuanced, is your translation may be smoothing it out, but the Greek is very efficient, economical, and challenging for understanding. The point here is that Jesus is saying here, 
is that he won't have to ask the father for them that when they ask the father already loves them because of of their love and belief in the son and therefore the father will be more than happy to give without having that need for intercession that doesn't mean that there will not be intercession it does not mean that intercession is completely unnecessary uh we should not look at this exclusively here instead what it's he's trying to emphasize here that the father has noticed their love and belief in the son and that will be noted when these things come to pass and at this point the disciples believe he speaks more clearly he had come from the father into the world and he was leaving the world to return to the father and so this was ah you are now speaking in Pedasia, not in parameis uh they confess that yes we believe in you and we don't need anyone to question you we believe that you have come from god and that's great it seems wonderful a great confession of faith but jesus sees that they're a little hasty in that confession he says do you really believe he says the hour is coming in fact uh, almost has come where each is going to go to his own house and they will leave him alone. But, as he assures them, the Father is with him. He is not really alone. And by the way, any way that we look at what's going on with Jesus through his, through the experience that he's about to go through must be tempered by this understanding here that Jesus is not alone. The Father is with him in all these things. And that Jesus spoke these things that they would have peace in him. And these final words before the prayer be ringing in the disciples' ears. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, in John 14, 27, Jesus had spoken uh, to them of giving his peace. Uh, very poignant peace. Again, not the just absence of hostility, but actually the elimination of hostility. Uh, that Jesus has killed the hostility on the cross and brought man, men together. In terms of overcoming the world, this will be a very powerful theme uh, of John himself. So in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is, greater in you, for he who is in you excuse me, is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then in chapter 5, in verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in both these passages, John goes back to that idea of what it means to have victory. The confidence that God is greater than the one in the world. How would Jesus overcome the world, though? Well, uh, by he lived faithfully to God. He uh, did not sin. He now would suffer and die for sin, and he'll be raised in power by God. So overcoming here means suffering and death which completely overthrows the expectations of the world. A stunning reversal of expectations, in fact. And this, in fact, would undergird everything that John says in his letters and also in Revelation. Uh, the whole idea of overcoming in Revelation is through submitting in faith and suffering, which is almost antithetical to the way it's understood in the world. And that's what gives Revelation its power and its meaning, and it's what's given Christianity its power uh, throughout time. And from here on out, Jesus is going to pray to the Father, 
then therefore he has completed his final message for his disciples before he would leave them. So what are we supposed to take from this? Well, in many respects, Jesus' final discourse is all about preparing the disciples for tribulation. He himself is about to go through the tribulation of his trial, betrayal, excuse me, betrayal, trial, and execution. The disciples would experience the tribulation of seeing their hopes and dreams seemingly dash in a moment when he would be killed. And after his death and resurrection, the disciples would experience the tribulations of the world, that hostility and persecution that they would obtain for proclaiming that Jesus is the risen Lord in Christ. None of these tribulations would be positive experiences in terms of being enjoyable, uh, but they would be positive in as much as they would be essential and instrumental in accomplishing God's purposes for their sanctification. In Jesus, we're going to experience something of the same. The disciples were well aware, if we've studied in the Gospels, that the disciples have their misunderstandings and misapprehensions about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Oh, they believe Jesus is the Christ. They just don't know what that means. They had to see those misapprehensions and misunderstandings purged through tribulation, through seeing him die. And in a sense, at that moment, all of their hopes for this uh, national monarchical restoration died with him. That was necessary to purge them of those things so they could come to an appreciation and understanding of what God was accomplishing in Jesus. And it's similar to us. We kind of have our own ideas about what it means to be a Christian. And we'll say Jesus is the Christ and we really necessarily don't know what that means. And a lot of times the way we're disabused of these false notions and apprehensions is by watching them die. By going through trials and tribulations which purge us of those ideas because we see their complete and utter failure. Uh, the kind of trial we're talking about is seen in Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 and 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In the world, we will have his tribulation like the original 11 disciples. We are beset by the deceitful sickness of sin in Hebrews 12. We encounter hostility because we proclaim Jesus the risen Lord in Christ. And we can suffer constant distress and despair from the assaults of the evil one, the ambivalence of those around us, the pressure to conform to the world, and things like that. In Romans 12, 1, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5, many other passages. And Jesus' words, therefore, should continue to ring in our ears, and for good reason. Because if he is the way, the truth, and the life, then the way to the Father is his way. And his way was the way of the cross, the way of suffering, humiliation, and shame, and trust in God for exaltation. And that's the way it's going to have to be for us. We're going to have to go through suffering. We're going to endure trial and tribulation, because, as Paul said in Acts 14.21, there is no other way of entering the kingdom of God but that way. And again, we always should be uh, interested that when it comes to message of encouragement, there, and there are many messages of encouragement in Scripture, it's always given to people going through difficulties and trial. Uh, so where we have an encouraging passage, we should understand that is in light of suffering and distress. And we need to be very careful, because one of the biggest problems that we have in Christianity is that we are comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. When in Scripture, the comfortable are afflicted and the afflicted are comforted. And uh, woe to us if we confuse and distort those. So even though tribulation is a major part of this, and it is a very major part of this, and the major theme of what Jesus is trying to say here, that, hey, look, I'm going to go through this, you're going to go through this, this is what you have to look forward to, he doesn't end on that note. Jesus' final word to the disciples was a victory, because he would overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world in John 16, 33. How could the disciples withstand and endure all the tribulation they were about to encounter? Their confidence in Jesus who obtained the victory. 
And that's the way it's going to be with us, and that's the reason for this encouragement. The encouragement is that, yes, for a while we are beset by various trials, but it is going to accomplish the purification of our faith so we can stand and ready to see Jesus in his return and awaiting him in, in his glorious majesty in joy. 1 Peter 1-9, through passages like that. Uh, that if we suffer as he suffered, we will obtain the victory in the resurrection as he obtained the victory in the resurrection. That's the powerful anchor of the Christian and his or her life. In this way, above all ways, Jesus has turned the world upside down. Because what looks like defeat to the world, uh, economic distress, physical distress, suffering, death, is really the ultimate victory if it's done in faith. Because Jesus suffered the loss, he absorbed the shame, he endured the humiliation, and that's how he gained victory over the forces of sin and evil. And that's why, throughout Revelation, overcoming the enemy involves trusting in Jesus, not loving one's life to death. In Revelation 12, 11, uh, we see this kind of echoed in 1 John 5, 4, and 5. The powers under the control of the evil one think they have defeated God's purposes in killing Jesus and then killing his people, but they have really indicated they're ultimately powerless because that's all they could do, and yet the victory is still given to them, to the, to the saints in Jesus. Jesus has the key to defeating evil. It's not uh, meeting evil with evil. It's not uh, bigger guns or bigger weapons. It's absorbing evil without responding in kind, even to the point of suffering and death. Because when the fear of death no longer compels, the tyrant has lost his main coercive power. That when you realize who can really mess you up, God, Matthew 10, 28, you, you have no fear of man and what he can do to you. And First Peter 2, 18-25, uh, Peter has a similar message. Because what could the world do to Jesus? It could kill him. That's all it could do. But God raised him up and he never would die again. That's how he's overcome the world. And the only way we're going to overcome it is if we're in him. And we're trusting in that that's what happened. And that that's the way it's going to have to happen if it's going to happen. And to recognize the worldly delusions and deceptions about how this is supposed to work for what they are. Now, throughout the entire final discourse, we've noted many things that Jesus has been repeating. And these repetitions have value. They're putting emphasis. Love one another as I have loved you. I'm sending you the promise of the comforter. And then there's this last one that makes people a lot of uncom really uncomfortable and that is whatever you ask for you will receive ask him the father and he will give it to you and we're made uncomfortable by this emphasis and repetition uh, embarrassed by it because of the health and wealth gospel the prosperity gospel out there and there are a lot of people out in the world and who, who uh, preach the health and wealth gospel it's a very popular gospel it's, it's the gospel of America and you got some passages hey whatever you ask for you're going to receive so you need to ask God uh, for that that uh, million dollars two million dollars ten million dollars you got to ask God uh, to be healed and you know what if you put your faith you have faith like a mustard seed God will give it to you. And if you're not receiving, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's peddling covetousness. And it bears all the hallmarks of the false teachers we see in 1 Timothy 6, 1-11. through 11. Their condemnation is going to be evident and woe to all those who are ensnared by them. Many have had their faith shipwrecked because of this ungodliness, which is completely inconsistent with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and, of course, the life and the model of the apostles who came after him. It's much more of what Americans want to hear than anything that was promoted by Jesus. And we feel for the many people who've been 
taken in their faith and 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 really suffer in their faith because of this kind of viewpoint and the untold number of people have had money swindled uh by having uh, been deceived by these people and then that these people would have the gall and temerity to blame and condemn those who had given uh them so much because they didn't have enough faith now james 4 1 through 4 explains why this this whole thing is misguided that if we ask ask to spend on our passions we ask wrongly and we're not going to receive uh that these statements here are not to be taken absolutely that there there's a context there but the abuse of a passage does not negate the value of the passage and i'm afraid that that discomfort and embarrassment we feel because the health and wealth gospel is keeping us from really recognizing this passage for what it is and living by it and that a lot of times we kind of hold back from asking for the things we need to ask for because we're afraid that we're asking wrongly. But Jesus' message is extremely important for us, just as it was for the 11 disciples, because if we want God to work, we need to ask him to work. God does not coerce or compel. Now, God stands ready and wanting to do great things to powerfully advance his purposes through us, as he says in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, beyond all that we could ask or think. But we need to want that to happen. And we need to ask him for it to happen if it's going to, in fact, happen. Which gives us the question, are we asking for God to work powerfully within us through his spirit to transform us in holiness and righteousness to better conform to the image of his son? Romans 8.29, as we said in Ephesians 3, also in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Are we asking God to powerfully work through us to bear witness to the world regarding his son that many would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved in 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 4? Now, a lot of times we can wonder why we don't see the kind of love and energy and growth that was manifest in the church in the first century. Is it perhaps at least in part because we haven't asked for it? And what would happen if the people of God asked the Father for great and powerful things to happen in the name of Jesus to advance his purposes? They don't need to be miraculous in order to be transformative and powerful. Now, yes, these verses that Jesus keeps going on about in Jesus' discourse about asking for anything are abused by many. They're going to continue to be abused by a lot of people. But they're not just a promise for the disciples, but a constant emphasis of Jesus's. He really wants his disciples to be asking for things, because if they don't ask, they can't receive. And the world will be all the more impoverished because of it. And so in the Son, we can overcome the world and endure tribulation. But we must ask for all things from the Father through the Son. So that we have seen how Jesus concluded his dialogue with his disciples before he was betrayed, that they would not see him for a time and have anguish and distress. They would see him again, though, and then they would have great joy. They would have tribulation in the world, but Jesus overcame the world in his death and resurrection. The disciples would then ask Jesus for things, and they would receive them, not in covetousness, but in humility to most effectively serve God and Christ and to advance his purposes. Now may we find victory over sin and death in Jesus, to take courage to ask for God to work powerfully in and through us to accomplish his purposes in Jesus, and in that way obtain the resurrection of life. You know, we're so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If so, please share it with friends, family, others on social media. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you'd like to discuss any of these things further, if you have a prayer request, just want to check out more about us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on various forms of social media. If I can be of service, please reach out to me on my website, TheVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.